Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 171 with my good friend, Bill Salick. Uh, Bill lives in Wisconsin, and Bill and I were roommates in college for a year. Uh, he's an amazing percussionist, really smart guy, and he also is heavily involved with the PAS Diversity Alliance, and we talk uh, a bit about what they are doing these days and the sort of stuff they're advocating for. Uh, and I just enjoy talking with Bill. He's a smart guy. He's a dear friend. Um, and it's nice to be able to sort of bat ideas back and forth with him. And I actually stumped him, which I've never done before. So, uh, okay. Hope you enjoyed this conversation with my good friend, Bill Salek. Hope you're all staying safe, staying healthy, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Bye. For being a little tardy to our meeting here. No, that's fine. That, that, that completely lets me save face for jumping on at 1.03 p.m. Oh. And being only marginally less late than you. I went on a walk because I'm a big fat piece of shit, Bill. And uh, I decided I went on a walk. I was like, I got a half an hour. And I went on a walk and I got back. I forgot to take my phone. And then I got home and I said, I'm late for Bill. And I already mocked him on Facebook yesterday mercilessly. <laughs> and here I am showing up late to my own podcast. So, Bill, I apologize. Um, you can hear me okay? Yeah, yeah. Can you hear me okay? You sound like 100 bucks, Bill. Um, okay, I'm good on my end. Well, Bill Salick, I appreciate you doing this. This is like your like ninth time back on the podcast. I feel like it's you- my it's my second time on the podcast. No, it's not. You've been on. This is only your second. I think so. Maybe third. Let's say third. Th- absolute max. Third is what was in my head, but lest we digress. Well, Bill, I want to start off with. Um, Pick up where we left off yesterday online. Uh, just real quick, the correct answer is quantum entanglement, and here's why. Um, you could have about 20 years ago, during that game of Trivial Pursuit, when I asked that question out loud, you could have said, Josh, the answer is quantum entanglement. And I would have said, you're wrong, Bill. It's boson. And, you, and, I, and then I would have said, well, what is quantum entanglement? Then you would have given me the correct answer. My mind would have been as equally blown And then I would have said, well, what's a boson? And you would have said, oh, well, I know what that is, too. Of course, that's the right answer. Then you would have told me that. And I would have been as blown away by your knowledge than than by what happened, which is what you gave the right answer and then made me feel stupid for the next 20 years. So I want this is a lesson in reading the room, Bill. You could have taught me more than one thing about a boson. You could have taught me about quantum entanglement. But you decided, you decided, Bill, to make it about you and say boson. I just wanted to sort of point that out um, and, and, and just let, have that be our jumping off point for the, for the, for the conversation. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm a horribly selfish person. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to fight you on that point. <laughs> Bill, I hope you know that the, the, the origin of this is coming, you know, purely from jest mm-hmm. and love, not from like, Oh yeah, no, it okay. was, well, it was, it, it, I remember the moment. It was a completely weird moment. Um, because the, the, the question on the card was something like, you know, in, in this comedy TV show or movie or something, some dork referred to a boson as a quantum unit of what? Or it was and, a Higgs particle as a quantum unit of what? And you were like a boson. And I had never even heard of any of that. Like I did. The answer was a boson. My, my memory of this is distinctly different. <laughs> As are most human memories, Bill. This is why this is why eyewitness accounts are often unreliable, Bill. 
Well, anyway, uh, we don't was, we don't need to dwell on this. Point is, is you are a you are a brilliant person. I don't want you to change that about yourself. <laughs> but I think you could have taught me more than one thing in that moment, and not left me with two decades of intellectual inferiority complex because of that one game of Trivial Pursuit. So just realize the power you have in those moments, Bill. I, I, I will use my power for the forces of good in the future, I promise. Well, well, Bill, I also want to apologize for ruining not – this is probably the second or third comment thread of yours that I've completely blew up with my random memories of you, whether it be with a bat or a boson. You, you, you keep it interesting, and I'm just waiting for, for someone to say something about voicemails so we can tell the story about our, about our mentors' interesting voicemails. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get, that'll be, that'll be our, <laughs> our catalyst for the, for the fourth podcast. Well, Bill, I, I, am, I so that only partially apologize for tanking your comment thread because it reminded me that I enjoy talking to you, and I wanted to reach out and speak with you and just you know, catch up yeah. since the last time we spoke about arranging stuff for the marimba which i'm sure bored people to death but um and it, it seems like the world has exploded exploded since then and and talking about the formal you know marimba arrangements of bach may not be the most relevant thing right now but um i'm, I'm kind of curious just to reconnect with you and sort of see what where your head's been and what you want to chat about well i i, I will say this backing up momentarily because i, I i've seen this this meme on Facebook about COVID where it's like, you know, if, if you stand this close together and you don't wear a mask, there's this much risk. And yeah. then like it goes far and you know, far down until you get to two, two people, one of whom is saying to the other, do you want to talk about uh, vibrato in Baroque music? And that's a situation where there's zero risk because the other person is running away. <laughs> and I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed at the sheer number of people who who were like, Oh look, Bill Salek's in this one. Like, like it was literally six or seven people tagged me in that and were like, "Hey, I, Bill's I, here." I really wish. I think Dr. Fauci needs to be con- consulting with like the New Music Research Day people at PASIC just to be like, you know, maybe if we knew a little yeah, like, bit about about music in the belly, I mean, maybe less people would get COVID. <laughs> yeah. How, how much of Kashimi or Saratsky's music can we do to keep people safe and far away from each other this year? <laughs> Listen, man, we got power in ways we don't we're not aware of. So I feel like we need to yeah. use it to use it for good. No, well, I mean, well, and you're not wrong about the state of the world. Things are things are odd and not great. It's a weird time to be alive. I mean, I got to say, like, I mean, this is not I mean, uh, times in human history where it's been incredibly stressful to be alive are not new. This is mm-hmm. this particular sort of it feels new because you and I are both living during it. But there have been just objectively speaking, way more traumatic times in human history that people have had to deal with various things. But right now, I would say is de- definitely a peak. We're definitely there's definitely a spike in the curve here in terms of humanity, and I'm, it's just a, such a strange time just to see the way everybody's processing all of this. It is, and a, well, and a lot of the stress comes from the fact that we know how so many of those other stories end because they've already happened, mm-hmm. you know. And we're watching people make choices now that can push things, excuse me, in one direction or another. And and to know that we're we're in the middle of a story and we don't know the ending of that story yet, and we actually have the agency to affect how that turns out. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it's 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 empowering and scary at the same time, you know, that that I can I can make individual choices that will increase or decrease the likelihood of things working out well. But there are also millions of other people making similar choices. And and what we do collectively is what's going to matter. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I guess part of the things that thing I want to talk about today is just sort of how 
it seems to me like uh, you mentioned the PAS Diversity Alliance, which I, I would love for you to, mm-hmm. to talk about. And, and just to be quite honest, uh, you know, uh, there's a million things going on in the world. And that is I've seen the. I've seen the stuff about the PAS Diversity Alliance come across my field of vision enough that I know it's a thing and I know it's, there's important work being done, but I'm going to claim complete ignorance as to what everything that's been going on within the Diversity of Alliance. So I kind of want mm-hmm. you to talk to me like I'm too and lay it all out. Um, and not because I, I've been a, avoiding it, just like it just of all the things happening, I've, I've interfaced with that particular aspect of what's going on very little. Um, but in terms of how we just right now everything's happening on social media how it feels not everything but a lot of it is happening on social media and the perception is that unless you're participating there or it feels like unless you're participating there you're not actually doing anything at least that's been my perception and whether or not that's rational is a whole nother thing but that's how my that's my feeling and i just kept i keep i've had a real hard time trying to figure out like is what i'm doing real if it's not happening on social media, on Facebook, if I haven't gotten 300 likes and 32 shares on the thing I'm doing mm-hmm. is the advocacy I'm doing real. Um, I also have been reacting a lot against a lot of the stuff people have been putting out and advocating for in ways that have surprised me that I of course support the thing that people are advocating for, but the people advocating for it are people I have over the last 15 years noticed have never been to a single African drumming concert at NYU or a single steel band concert at NYU and are now taking this mantle of like anti-racism and really riding this flag, driving that mission home in such a way that like, because I'm not participating in the way they want to participate, there's this perception that I'm not like that I'm against what they're, I'm just like, wait, what's going on? Like, dude, I've I've texted you for 15 years, the address of the steel bands in Brooklyn, and you never once came. Can I talk about that as part of the anti-racism discussion or whatever? And it's, it's a really, it's a really tricky thing. And I've just had a real hard time entering the fray. And so I'm really curious to sort of talk about this stuff with you because you're a smart guy and I know that you love nuance. Um, And I like, I want to pick your brain about it because you're also a guy as a white guy, from Buffalo who has participated in a lot of African music in your life and have really championed it. I feel like, and similar to me with steel band music, I feel like you, you and I have occupied similar spaces in a sense over the last two decades. And I'm kind of just kind of curious to pick your brain a little bit about that stuff, but that's my, that's my premise for wanting to talk to you, but uh, that's, I'll let you go from here. No, I totally get that. And, and I, I, I thoroughly acknowledge that, it's an extension of my personal selfishness in this moment of national crisis to say, let me tell you about my niche work in my professional <laughs> academic society. Um, but no, the, the, the PAS Diversity Alliance is doing, doing some really fantastic work. They've been in existence for a few years now, three or four years. Mm-hmm. Um, they exist kind of as a committee within the organization, but with a couple of specific exceptions, because one of PAS's rules is that you can only be on one committee and we want people to be on this committee as well as others. Is that right? I didn't um, realize that was a rule at PS. It, it became one. It, and it is there became, a term yeah. limit? Like you can only be on the committee then for so many years, or is it indefinite? Yeah. So there, there, there are three three year terms in all of the committees, and then you can do two of them in a row. You can so you can do a total of six years before you have to take a year off and then reapply to that committee or to to any other. And let me just ask you out of ignorance. Let's just say I was serving on the like Ways and Means Committee of the United States government. 
are you allowed to mm-hmm. serve on two committees in, in the in the government as well, or is everybody basically assigned to one committee? I'm sort of in Congress. No, I, I think I think there's overlapping membership. Is there? Okay. I, be, right. yeah. I just I don't know. I just assumed. Yeah. Not when you said that, I was <laughs> like, well, I wonder. It's, it's like on the Judicial Committee, does Chuck Grassley serve on five different other committees? I just don't know. Don't don't say his name to me. Sorry, <laughs> Charles Grassley. Sorry, I didn't. Charles Grassley. <laughs> Chaz Chaz Grassley. <laughs> um. But and and within the diversity alliance, I mean, right now the diversity alliance has somewhere in the neighborhood of three hundred members. It's an incredibly vibrant and 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 dedicated and, and diverse group of people, um, with with a bunch of uh, subcommittee focus areas, uh, including uh, specific work in higher education, specific work on racial diversity issues, on LGBTQ diversity issues. Um, right now I'm working on a subcommittee uh, for socioeconomic issues mm-hmm. because one, one, of the, one of the problems the field is facing is that it takes, you know, it takes too much money to pursue certain paths of this thing that should be for everyone and is totally cool. Give me an example. Like, um, well, aside from the elephant in the room going to college, um, also things like the fact that, you know, the, 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 the conference is expensive to go to. We want to find ways to get more people to be able to go to the conference who can afford it. Um, we also know that public school music education in the country is extremely unevenly distributed. And so bringing, you know, bringing meaningful experiences to everyone at kind of all age levels is something that we have to proactively do. Because if we just sit still, some people will get it and some people won't. And that has no correlation to who's going to get bitten by the bug, you know, who's going to get... who, who's going to get kind of snagged by this wonderful, brilliant thing that percussion is. Mm-hmm. And you and I know that our field is missing a lot of those people. You yeah. know, the, there are people out there that we need who don't have meaningful contact with percussion and they should. Mm-hmm. Um, this, and, and again, this is also not to downplay any of the, the problems that our field has had with race, with gender, with LGBTQ issues going, you know, going back to again in, in, in my, um, you know, my, my public school music experience when, you know, there, there are places, schools where I go and visit where you just look around and there are the young women playing the glockenspiel in the band and there are the young men playing the drums and it's not, I don't want to say it's not an accident, but like it, it's a paradigm that exists and it's a paradigm that shouldn't exist because all of this stuff is cool and all of this stuff is for everyone. Well, can I ask you real quick? Um, why do you think that's the case? I have my own theories and I'm happy to talk about them, but like, and again, my thinking on, I've, I've been thinking long and hard about this stuff too, but I'm curious for you. Why do you think starting in elementary school there is, because for me, that stuff didn't start in high school. That was hmm. fifth grade on. And my teacher was a woman, and a very good one. And she ran the steel band. So for me, like when I hear the like, there's misogyny in the music programs. I get it. I understand that argument. But in my case, I can't. I can't fairly and justly say that's the case in my case. Growing up, yet the results were very similar. And I'm curious, in terms of like misogyny from a band director running a program. And I'm just kind of curious mm-hmm. for you. Why do you think? Why do you think that disparity even appears 
at such a young age, let alone appears in college, you know, t- 20 years later. I it's it's so hard for me to I mean th- there are gender paradigms around so many instruments already, you know, it, it's it's it it, it it could very well be the same reason why you don't see a whole lot of male flute players. Um, that, that percussion is just associated with certain aspects of masculinity involving physical force. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, playing, playing the mallet instruments is somehow seen as being, I don't know, less forceful, less aggressive. It, it, it I'm, I'm honestly less interested in, in, in exploring the root causes of why it exists, because that gets awfully close into saying those are good reasons for it to exist. And, and, and that conversation doesn't have zero value, but I think that it, it's, it's more important to find ways to get drums into everyone's hands and get these instruments into everyone's hands I think I, um, I, I just, just out of the interest of devil's advocate, I think I do. I think this has been at the crux of a lot of my confusion about a lot of the stuff is that to me, like I agree with a hundred percent actually with the getting drums and stuff in the hands of folks. And that's actually to me in terms of my theory as to why there's like one of the reasons I think there is gender disparity um, is because in fifth grade, uh, sorry, allow me to flush this out with, and, and please know that I've thought that I do acknowledge that there is sexism and all of the shit and racism baked in the system in many ways that are hard to put your finger on. But for me, when I was in fifth grade, I chose the drum because I walked in the room and the woman who was teaching drums also taught a steel band and that steel band played. And I thought, I want to be as close to that as I can. And the way to do that wasn't through the trumpet. It was through the snare drum because I knew she taught the snare drum. I went over and picked that snare drum up and I was like, I want to do this. My mom paid $200 for it, which was about half the price of a trumpet at the time. So there's socioeconomic issues right there. First of all, if I wanted to play trumpet, it was going to cost twice as much as a snare drum. I picked it up, started taking it home. And then I had to carry that motherfucker back and forth to school every day. And I had to buy, my mom had to buy me a cart and I'm not a small person, Bill. I had to carry that around. Mm-hmm. All of my flute player friends stuck it in their backpack and walked to school and my and so again like maybe this isn't the like if we could put if we had enough funding that that instrument petting zoo whenever the parents walked in the room and the band director just simply said don't choose an instrument based on how big or small your child is because i know as a parent you're worried about your kid getting on the bus walking to school all of the shit that every parent has to deal with don't worry about that we have two of everything so we'll have we'll have one sent home and we'll have one here so if your kid wants to play the tuba and her name's Susie and she's four foot one and weighs 92 pounds, come on over. We'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. To me, like that stuff is never dealt with and has never been dealt with. And when you hand someone something in the fifth grade, I think, I mean, that stuff gets baked in. All of a sudden, that's what you play. And it's not about whether you're a boy or a girl. It's about that's well, it's, you get then you get to sixth grade and you're like, well, I've played flute for a year. Then you get to seventh grade, and then you get to ninth grade, and then you're a senior in high school, and all of a sudden the band director's like, we don't have anybody who can play the bell part. There's anybody who can read treble clef. Next thing you know, you've got a flute player who can read treble clef, which in my case was the case. We had two flute players came up and play the bell parts every time we did John Philip Sousa. Now, I'm trying to say all this stuff and couch it in like, of course there's all of the stuff that human beings do, which is shitty. But is there if one of the root causes is simply that there's not enough access to instruments 
at both places, either in the home or at school, can we do like the root cause is pretty important to me as I guess what I'm saying, like just putting in stuff in the hands of people. I'm not so sure is going to solve the problem. It's like giving people a like um, methadone all the time and saying, well, this is going to solve your problem. It's like, well, let's go look at the root cause of where this comes from. That was a terrible analogy, probably Bill, just for the record. But I'm curious as to why you think the root causes isn't something worth dealing with, but dealing with the stuff on the back end is. No, I think the root causes absolutely are worth dealing with. And I don't think there's any one thing, any one group of us can do that's going to solve all of the problems. Very you there. Um, it's, it's interesting to note. And I, I had a long conversation with this uh, about this with a good friend of mine uh, who, who teaches in public school. And he and I did a lot of work in musical pit orchestras together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's always interesting in, in the examples that you give about to talk to, to, to consider how many of those decisions were made because and again, I have so much respect for my, my colleagues and friends who teach music in the public schools. Um, but how many of those decisions are governed by the fact that there's, there's this product that music departments in the public schools are on the hook for producing, whether it's a halftime show at a football game, mm-hmm. whether it's a holiday concert, and that decisions like, okay, you know, the, 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 whole, the whole example you gave, we have a bell part. Is there anyone here who can read treble clef and play this instrument they've never played before? All of that is driven by the fact that there is this huge emphasis put on needing to put on concerts, needing to put on halftime shows, needing to put on parades, needing to produce entertainment products in an educational setting where the art students are not on the hook for running an art gallery and where the English classes are not on the hook for producing chapbooks of poetry and where the history classes aren't, you know, the, 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 the gym classes aren't on the hook for running sports leagues. You know, I mean, if, if we want to talk about systemic root causes, I think that's one of them. And that's not to say that, you know, the, the, the that's not to devalue the the importance of the feelings of accomplishment and community and joy that that kind of public performance brings. Mm-hmm. But when you're making so many decisions based on I have to make this product as a music educator instead of. I need to create well-rounded human being musicians who are, who are healthy. That, that, that's the kind of structural root cause that I think could actually change things. But the, the, the act at like changing those structures and changing those incentives is just so it, it, it's a large and deep project and, it's going to be hard. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, everything you said, I agree with a hundred percent. This is the, this is the thing that's so fascinating to me about all these conversations is I think the more people talk face to face rather than on, you know, Facebook screeds or slogans that you put up and like, if you're not doing this, then you must be this. Like, I agree with everything you just said. I think I do though, take an issue with the conflating of, um, you know, the desire to have somebody like, you know, when you get in senior, senior band, me being a senior in high school and not knowing how to read music, not knowing how to read treble clef is more of an indication is less of actually an indication of the ability of my teacher, Joan Wenzel in the moment and more of an indication of the Alfred method books. Every Alfred method book I started with in fifth grade was one single line, right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left. That is it for years, years before they even get to a clef, if at all. Trumpet players Mm -hmm. start from day one. So, like, yes, some of it is like, yes, in, in high school, you got to do football games. But why are we not why are we not looking at those method books in fifth grade and being like, hold up a second. 
let's put a let's put a chunk in here about rote teaching. Let's teach a, a fifth grade band director how to teach a tune by rote because that's what happens in Ghana, in Trinidad, and everywhere else in the world mm-hmm. for the most part. Why not teach kids? Why not teach your band your your percussionist how to read treble clef? Because chances are pretty good that by the time they get to senior in high school, they won't have to recruit a bell player. And those are less driven, I think, by a halftime football game than they are by a method book that is sold by Steve Weiss. That is, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it's not a simple fix. Don't get me wrong. Like, that's, it's hard to write a method book and it costs money and time and all that shit. Trust me, I know. But like, that to me seems like a way easier lift, actually, than trying to convince a halftime football program that they are part of a systemic issue that they need to get rid of. You know what I mean? In terms of things I feel like I can do. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and again, you know, the, the, the pedagogical goal, and, and again, not to single out Alfred, but like so many of those. I'm the beginning... one who singled out Alfred, Alfred, by the way, not you. I brought him up. <laughs> um, but yeah, but, but again, the, the pedagogical goal of so many of those method books is to get a working wind band up on stage with young kids as quickly as possible. Mm. My, my beginning situation was a little bit different. I, I first started taking drum lessons privately at a local music shop from, from, from a local jazz drum set player uh, when mm. I was in third grade. I wasn't involved with public school music until I got to middle school. I, I, till I middle pers- school, really? I didn't know that. Till middle school, yeah. I didn't, no, no. Um, that I, explains I took, everything. I took, I took weekly drum lessons. Okay. And, you know, for, for two years, it was, it was snare drum. And then, and then I, in fifth grade, I started doing a little bit of drum set stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I pursued it kind of the same way people pursue knitting. Like there were no concerts. I didn't have any dreams of being in a rock band. Like it was this thing that I did with my hands that I enjoyed and got fulfillment out of. But what, what I realized what I realized in retrospect is that what I did was I spent those four years from third through sixth grade. I didn't have to worry about concerts. I didn't have to worry about producing anything. Mm-hmm. All I did was learn to play my instrument and, and to read music and to just work on how well I played my instrument. And I feel like I would have been, I, I, I would have not been well served if I had to worry about learning all these parts and doing something for mm-hmm. a concert. Um, and, and that didn't, you know, that doesn't mean that I didn't have things I had to catch up on when I, when I started playing in my middle school band, but I showed up and within three or four weeks, I was whatever, you know, whatever the equivalent of section leader was or whatever, Mm -hmm. because all the little, like, like I could figure out how to play a pair of crash cymbals. I could figure out how, I could figure out how to work with a conductor, but like all the basic skills of, you know, here's the sheet music, here's a drum, here's a pair of sticks be able to play this next week like mm-hmm. I, I was i was able to do um yeah all, all of those basic things because i think i i think in part because i had spent the the previous four years focusing on those things rather than mm-hmm. all of the other stuff that's attendant with public school music education it, it served me really really well it does like i i agree with you again bill we're agreeing on almost everything here this is fantastic <laughs> um the i to me, I've always wondered why we treat college education like an apprenticeship, but, you know, fifth grade education like this sort of um, assembly line you've just got to sort of get on. Like, I'm going to go take lessons with Bob Van Sice for two years and basically have an apprenticeship where I'm going to study chamber mm-hmm. music with this guy for two years and do next to nothing else. 
and just get really good at this one thing. And, you know, you studying with Bernard Woma or Kay Stonefeld or, you know, us with Larry Snyder or Matt Duda or me going to Trinidad. Like, those are little mini apprenticeships. Like, if you mm-hmm. just call them an apprenticeship rather than, like, um, a class I signed up for, you know, and I've got to follow the specific curriculum, I've always wondered, like, why we put so much, like, if we put as much emphasis on a fifth grade music lesson as we do, you know, somebody studying with Larry Snyder or Kay Stonefeld or Bob Van Sice, like, Oh my God, the education system in 20 years would look completely different. And so that takes me to this then. So let's, I'm a, I, I hate wallowing in hypotheticals too long. And I feel like mm-hmm. since the, since the pandemic, we've all been in a hypothetical on my, my mental health. I was going to say, you, you must be really hating this conversation. <laughs> oh, up no, no, this no, point this is great. Hypotheticals. No, 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 this is great. Um, <laughs> but we're at the point now where I'm desiring, I'm hungry for a little bit of like, okay, so Bill Salek gets a phone call tonight. You are now going to teach music at, in a school. And you have, and they're going to say, Bill, shit's fucked up. We don't know what's going on. Do whatever the fuck you want to do for the next 10 years. What do you do? What, what do I do? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and let me say, like, you can, you can, let me, let me leave it on you to decide whether or not you feel like you can best tackle it teaching middle school band, elementary school band, or high school band, or college. Like, you, you, you pick that, but you tell me, how, what would you change and how would you do it? It, wow, that, that's that, that's a great question because I I haven't I haven't spent too much time thinking about that. I I do know that, um, yeah, you've you, you've kind of stumped me because my brain has been so many other places lately. I don't have an answer either, Bill. Just to be clear, mm-hmm. like, well, let me tell you, let me make one up. Here's what I would do. I would require of myself. I mean, the, the thing that's hard at NYU, at least in terms of the steel band at NYU, I think rote teaching in Trinidad is a very specific thing, different than it is say in West African drumming, the way Bernard Woma, mm-hmm. and I worked with Bernard a very tiny bit before he passed, but the way he taught a way drumming was different than the way Kendall Marconotti teach panorama drumming or panorama stuff in Trinidad. It's mm-hmm. subtle differences. If you squint at it, it's sort of the same, but there's the way they talk about phrasing versus rhythm, all those things. I would absolutely go out of my way to make sure that at least a quarter of the program, at least to start off, was completely taught by rote. I know that teaching it all by rote right now would be a, too heavy of a lift and actually would, would take away a lot of the momentum from the program. And to me, I want to take the 40-year year view of my program and not the right now year view. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would get rote teaching in the mix because it's lacking everywhere in, in, in higher education. Secondly, I would make sure that every guest artist I had coming in to play in, in, with the steel band was of Trinidadian descent. And no, uh, only to purely just say, like, man, there's thousands of people. Like, I'm not going to run out of guest artists for the steel band. And I feel like I've done a good job at that. But there's been a few years, like, where I had my friend – I had Murray Mass come in because Murray's great. I had Kyle Dunleavy mm-hmm. come in because because they give great information. It's not because I don't think it was a valid thing. But mm-hmm. I think maybe Murray and Matt aren't – maybe Murray and, and Kyle aren't having the hardest time. And maybe it's not – their information isn't unimportant, but – Maybe Quint Rose's information from Brooklyn is, might be something like that's a skill I need to tap into now, and he's right over the subway. So I want to make sure I go out of my way there. That's what I would do. But for you, like, what would you do? No, I mean, you, you've raised two good points, and I absolutely agree with you. One is that I think we have, there has to be much less of a hierarchy in terms of what kinds of music making are valuable and what kinds aren't valuable. That, you know, but I mean, Think think about a professional rock band. A professional rock band. King Crimson, for example. 
King Crimson, for example. Even 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 a less extraordinary example than King Crimson. Just like think think about a jobbing four piece rock band to yeah. the extent that those still exist anymore. Mm. What you have are four people who get up on stage and they play incredibly well and trained music. Maybe they're going to play three 45 minute sets, which means they're playing more than two hours of music. They're doing it all from memory. Mm. They're doing it in this really thoroughly embodied way. And, you know, maybe it's not as complex as Stockhausen or Stuart Saunders Smith, but there is a lot that's happening musically that they're able to execute without a single piece of printed music in front of them. Mm -hmm. And so anyone who says that, that, you know, that, that kind of music making is dumb or unskilled or whatever, or that those people are bad musicians because they can't read music, that, that idea really just kind of has to go. Um, the fact that there are many, many ways to make music, and all of them have validity, all of them have value, and it's not just, you know, and not all of them rely on music literacy, not all of them rely on the European tradition. Um, and the second point you make is really important, that I, I would absolutely have clarity in terms of, like, okay, who... What, you know, what, what am I teaching? What, what am I teaching to you sort of as a second language versus what am I doing to bring primary source culture bearers into the classroom? You know, when I, when I teach Gahu and I, I need to say, I'm not any kind of expert in African music or West African music or even a way music, but you, you know, know a lot. What, I mean, you know, you know what enough to be dangerous. Yeah, what, what, yeah, well, in, in terms of in terms of Awe music, I can play I can play and teach Gahu and Gota as Bernard Woma taught them to me from the National Dance Company, mm-hmm. which I'll say, you know, because I, I have a colleague in our social work department department named Francis Akakpo, who's who's ethnic Awe. His family is from Togo, mm-hmm. and the Gahu that I play is different than the Gahu that is one hundred percent. Gahu um, that he's familiar with yeah. from from his youth, um, but to understand that you know th- there's a way in which I will always speak that as a second language. I will never be a native speaker mm-hmm. of that, mm-hmm. and there are things that native there are things that native speakers can do, and there are things that culture bearers will always have a deeper relationship with mm-hmm. than I can ever have. And yeah. Um, you know th- those kinds of ideas are very important, and I, I I don't think I don't know that it's really possible for someone to be too young to learn about those things mm-hmm. in a public school. Yeah, I don't think so either. And I, I I you know I think back some of the some of the thing that has things that has irked me a little bit just a way of, and I see former students of mine saying stuff like this on Facebook is the sort of like if you aren't from that culture keep that culture's music out of your mouth like things like that like this this demand and i i again it's like i i understand i get it i empathize i know what you're saying um but i think back to like you know matt dudak matt's as white as they come i live near the town where matt grew up it's as white as they come <laughs> but matt made sure and so did larry to have people like bugsy and cliff and Liam and Earl Rodney and Mia Gormandy and you name it, Ray Holman, like come through all the time. Like they weren't the culture bearers were there from day one with me at, at Akron. Joan Wenzel brought in Cliff Alexis and Ray Holman mm-hmm. when I was in high school. Like I've been, I feel like I've been spoiled a little bit that that's been the, the default, at least as far as steel band stuff is concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Well, and, and you were you were also there as a student at Akron when when you know you experienced you know sort of what what West African drumming was like when I taught right. my pale shadow of it, and then how everything changed when Bernard showed up. I mean, that's that is the difference, right? Right, and there's there's just I mean it's the reason like when I have Kendall Williams come in to NYU or I you know I Mark Brooks or anybody from Brooklyn come in and, and or I have a I, I at NYU I have bands there's a, I have a steel or what's called a stage side band from Brooklyn um, which is like the normal hundred piece band for Panorama has what's called a stage side which is about ten to twenty players and they they tour throughout the year they have after school programs for educational purposes. Um, and I will invite the stage side band of whatever band that we're featuring, whatever artists we're featuring that year, and they will come and join us for like a mass band thing. And bro, like there's only so much I can tell my steel band about how to play like a Trinidadian steel band. There's only so far I can get them because the only words coming out of my mouth are corn, 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 corn field, corn field. I'm from Ohio. Like that's all I can get out at a certain point, right? I can tell them mm-hmm. all I want about how to feel a boom, boom, or whatever, like a like a Trini, but you just need to have a Trini standing in front of you playing it. That's, that's the next step. And I'm fortunate to live in New York or teach in New York where I can tell my students, which Matt couldn't do, which is I can tell my students like, Hey, get, get on the G train and ride it till it goes no more. (laughs) You get on the seven train and just go till it stops and then get out and turn left and walk a half an hour and you will end up in Trinidad essentially. And like, that's, Mm -hmm. that's something that as a teacher, I feel like ethically, I know what to do to make the band from a chamber music perspective sound good. That's easy. Like you're either together or you're not. That's not a cultural thing. Like the no is either together or not. You either play to C mm-hmm. or a C sharp. That is not a cultural thing. But when it comes to feel, when it comes to the way a band lilts, the way a band hits certain things, the way a drummer accents the low pans rather than the, the front line, that's all stuff I've learned from Trinidadians, not from, you know, being, white guy Josh Quillen and so percussion. so percussion never deals with that stuff we've never once talked about that with the exception of last February when we went down to Trinidad like anyway just to say that like it, where my ethics and where my skill set as a as a person um, I feel like I try real hard to just like nope don't know what I'm doing talk to him <laughs> and yeah, if, if I get fired yeah. from NYU in the long run for it I'm not going to lose sleep over that I'm I'm right I don't know what I'm talking about you need to talk to them yeah, and I think I think it's important because you know, you know, as as educators, we all have this instinct to, you know, when when I have discovered something good, my first instinct is to share it with other people. Right, right. And and to recognize that point where you say, okay, I'm I'm at the periphery of my knowledge here. Right. I'm at the periphery of my abilities, you know, and to articulate that really clearly because if you are a good educator your students generally trust you. And so if you start making guesses and inferences and suppositions that, that you don't really have a solid base to make, that you, you, you know, your students are going to take those with the same kind of authority that they take your, your, your central knowledge from, unless you very, uh, I think, unless you very clearly say, look, I'm guessing, well, I, I don't know. I, right. I, I need, I, I need to write somebody an email. Right. Well, you're right. And, but they also, they also can see through your bullshit. That's the other thing too. I've learned early on is like, there are days when I will like, I'll start to go down a path of something and I'm like, I need to cop to it real quick here. Otherwise I'm going to start lying to them. And cause I can see the looks on their faces. Like they know I don't have a game face first of all. So if, so, if I'm mm-hmm. lying, people can tell and because it looks like I'm lying. And so I, I just am very clear to be like, here's what I think it is. Do not, I'm not a historian. Don't take my word for this. But if you want to like, if you want to figure it out, 
look up this and then this will probably get you to the best answer, but don't like, I'm now at the limit. I, I feel like I try to say that out loud as much as I can. Um, and sometimes it feels like a cop out, but I, I also try to go home and then like, like, where the fuck did it go? Shit, Bill, I don't know where it went. Um, I had a couple books that were like, there's one called the steel band movement by Steven Stemfley. And there's another one called from tin pan to Taspo by Kim Johnson. And it's just like history of the formation of the steel bands in Trinidad, late 1800s through World War II. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to go back and reread those and make sure I know my shit. But mm-hmm. and as I'm reading it, I'm like, yeah, I pretty much know what I'm what I, I know what I was talking about. But there's a few key details that I was sort of riffing on. And I just need to don't I, I need to not riff on them. I need to know them. And mm-hmm. it's been nice to go back and do that. But um, I'm, I'm curious, though, for you, like some other one other sort of um, when I think of systemic uh, my friend, my friend Quent Rose, who's a he's an arranger, steel band tuner, lives in Brooklyn. Re- just a stunningly brilliant person, philosopher, thinker, teacher. Uh, theoretically, like the way he talks about music theory and the way he breaks down, he'll break down panoramas the way like somebody might break down a Mahler symphony and like talk. It's it's insane. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but he reached out to me the other day and he's like, "I want to go to doctorate. I want to get my doctorate." And I said well, why? And, you know, he sort of explained to me why. And I, I said, well, he's like, do you have yours? And I said, no, I don't, I, I didn't want to go get it. And he's like, why? He's like, you teach at Princeton and NYU. I said, I'm adjunct at both places. Next question. <laughs> like I am not a tenured professor at any place. And I said, well, it was too expensive for me. Um, I was too in debt from Yale to continue on. I just couldn't afford it. And I didn't want to spend another five years time, time and money. And, and so I, but, but when I made that decision, I had to also make the decision that I was never going to teach full time at a university. I was never going to get health insurance through university that way. I was never going to get retirement through university that way, because in order to get to teach at the university of Akron or, you know, whatever Idaho community college, you need a doctorate to even get through the door. So in terms of systemic oppression, if it's keeping me out, it's keeping a lot of people out. And so I wonder if I, if we're talking about systems that need changing, I feel like the institutional accreditation system that requires a, you know, the university of Akron to have 68% of its faculty be doctorates. Otherwise it loses its funding or its accreditation standards. Why don't we take that away so that we don't require, I mean, why, why is a doctorate required? Why did, why, why shouldn't Bernard Woma have tenure? I mean, he's passed away now, but why, why didn't he have tenure in, in retirement and health insurance at a place? Why didn't he have all that stuff? Oh, like, he should have. He should have, right? Why doesn't yeah. Kendall Williams, why, can't, why doesn't Valerie Naranjo at NYU have access to that stuff? It's because of this accreditation system, which makes it nearly impossible. And I understand it. Like they're trying, it's, I get it all. But from your standpoint, you're someone who has a doctorate, who I feel like you are, you are somebody in my friend group who has been on that track. I jumped off that I jumped off that that train track a long time ago, but you you stuck it out, and I'm curious from your standpoint. When I say that out loud, is there any part of you that's like "fuck you, Quillen"? <laughs> like I got my doctorate, it was really hard. God damn it! Like no, this shouldn't be an easy thing. Like, am I am I anywhere off base here, or am I am I close to something? No, I think I, I think you're close to something, and I think that again, if if we want to talk about root causes, um, part of the difficulty is that the, the the conversation keeps coming back to universities mm-hmm. as these kind of 
nodal centralities of American culture. Um, And I don't, I don't know that that necessarily speaks to a problem with universities, although man, universities have problems and they need, you know, but I, I don't think this problem is the fact that universities shouldn't be centers of culture, but, but there should be much more culture outside of universities. Mm. Again, how, how much of this is driven by the fact that there, you know, there aren't enough secure, remunerative, safe, lifelong careers outside of academia in our field. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what if, you know, what if, states and cities did more to have full-time artists and musicians working what if what if our our our, our nonprofit sector was simply a, a a much safer and excuse me much more well-funded place to be you know we wouldn't have to keep leaning on universities if we had other significant cultural institutions and in major in major american cities those exist like what in small in smaller huh like what i mean how many how many professional symphony orchestras are there in new york city i mean f- full-time or part-time um probably one <laughs> i mean the new york field i mean right now probably one <laughs> I mean, I, well, I wouldn't say that there's a whole lot of professional orchestras in New York City. I think there's a lot no, of but I'm, part-time I'm just, ones. No, but I'm, I'm just speaking about that. And well, there, 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 are, there are many other full-time ones. I'm, I'm pretty sure that if you play in the Met Orchestra, you're playing in a full-time orchestra. If you play in, I don't know if the New York City Ballet is full-time, but like there are enough institutions that you can cobble together an existence where you're paying your bills and you don't have to lean on universities necessarily. Well, but how much it's of that possible? I'm not saying it's easy. No, no, no. I'm just saying how much but it's of that possible, is possible, but, but I'm saying that is if, relative to the size. I mean, cause I agree with you, the New York Met, like, okay, so how many, how many musicians are in the New York Met op- opera? The, the, uh, I, I don't know off. Let's say hand. there's a hundred. But, but, but what I'm saying let's is, just say, is no, wait, like, let's say there's a hundred. Let's say there's a hundred. Okay. There's yeah. 12 million people in New York. So, like, relatively speaking, I don't have it's not it's not given. I have zero chance of playing with the Met Opera bill. Like, it's not like it's a right. I have or any of my students have any chance of playing with the Met Opera. So it's the same but, as being in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and having a community theater that has a gig open, and there's one spot open. Like, it's the same access to to culture that it's just in New York. It feels like it's bigger because it gets all this press. But there's a hundred people, and those people are not giving those jobs up. And when that timpani position opens up, there's seven hundred people who apply. Not from New York, like from all over the world. So, sorry, well, that, that I don't know why I got so triggered by that, Bill. I apologize. <laughs> no, I, 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 I think sorry. one thing you, one thing you and I have common is is a near limitless ability to be triggered by the professional vagaries. Of, but triggered of by what each other, I think. Let's 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 we both yeah. have the ability to be triggered by each other. <laughs> but so th- there's this really fantastic book by by an economist named Hans Abing called okay. "Why Are Artists Poor." Mm. And there's, yeah, I think, I think you can actually get it online as a PDF for free. And the central thesis of the book is this, that most artists are poor because being an artist is, is an awesome enough thing that as soon as you create, as soon as you create a place where someone can survive meaningfully as an artist a lot of people will choose to do that instead of taking on an occupation that maybe pays more, but is less fulfilling. 
So for example, if you have, let's say you have a million dollars with a million dollars, you can have say 10, you, you can fund 10 artists making a hundred thousand dollars a year, or you can fund 20 artists making $50,000 a year, or you can fund, do the math bill, 40 artists making $25,000 a year, you know, at some point that level of income falls below subsistence and people stop taking you up on it. Mm -hmm. But what happens when, when, when you get into prestigious elite organizations, like the professional symphony orchestras we've been talking about, Mm -hmm. as soon as you start paying people more than subsistence, those organizations have to start answering for the fact that, you know, by paying somebody a hundred thousand dollars a year, instead of paying two people $50,000 a year, what they're doing is they're creating more people from being, sorry, they're keeping more people from being able to be artists. And again, it's, it's, it's a deep thing. It's, it's a very structural thing. I, I don't know how to address it. Um, yeah, I'm not so re- sure either because I don't, I don't necessarily, to me, I don't know, the word re- reductive is wrong, but it seems like it's taking a huge problem and boiling it down to one simple thing that I'm not so sure. I, I guess I just don't know how to, I don't know how to enter that because I'm not so sure that the premise is right. Like I, mm-hmm. I understand to me, to me again, I, I want to know, like I, I, especially in these days with COVID and like the confusion or I mean. You know, we're watching people on the steps of the Supreme Court random on ramble on about random shit. Like everybody's, uh, I want data right now. Like I just want to know. Like, all right, I think this is an interesting point. I'm really curious about this. What is the percentage of people who are getting paid that amount of money actually? Like, how many people are participating in major orchestras in the world? Or let's just take the United States. Like, how many people? How many students who are saying they want to do music for a living? How many people? How many of those people are actually participating in that part of the economy? And then what other, what's the other part? Because my mm-hmm. perception is that, and I've had this perception since I was an undergrad when I went to take the Canton Symphony audition, which was a, I learned more from that than almost anything else in my entire <laughs> life. <laughs> and I went in there with my hanger two-tone, all separated apart, ready to play Scheherazade. Everybody's laughing in my face, you know. Um, but there's a room full of 50 people, most of whom were over the age of 50, and I was like, what is this? Like, what? Whole, what? So this tells me there's a huge supply, very little need. Like, there's a, there's a glut of people who are taking these auditions. There's very few spots. So how many of these people are actually, are we all, like, we've been convinced that this is the economy. This is the only economy. And I think that's where So Percussion decided early on looking at groups like Nexus where they didn't have necessarily, they went out of their way to avoid an income stream. They wanted it to be part-time black earth, all those guys, they were like, we do not, (laughs) this is not a full-time job. We do not want the pressure of it being a full-time job. And we actually took that and decided to turn it on its head and say, no, fuck it. We can treat it like the Met opera. We just, there's four spots. And so percussion and we want all four spots. Congratulations. And we just made it up. And I think it was a reaction to this idea that the only tracks were to get a college teaching job or to play in an orchestra. Whether or not that's a health, whether or not my feelings about that are true, that's not proof of anything. But I do feel there's a misplaced, like people have this sense that there's all this opportunity in orchestra playing that if we just made more spots in orchestra, everybody would be happy. I'm like, what? No, that that is absolutely not my position. Sorry if I mischaracterized it, Bill. No, it, it, it's not. I, I I think that there's we we all know that there is a huge huge shortage 
of ways to pay your bills and be an artist. Mm -hmm. And that being an artist, you know, it, it should be viable to be an artist without having to subject yourself to lifelong financial precarity. I think I agree with you, but I I also understand the other side of the argument. I guess I I I only take issue with the should, that you should be able to support yourself being an artist. I agree with you. I I want to be able to. But this is the, the idea that I somehow this maybe this is the capitalist in me. This is the, the dad, my dad part of me, the conservative side of me, which says, like, I, I agree. Like, we all want the we all want that. I want that, too. But this idea that I somehow deserve it or it's or it's enti- I have some entitlement to that. And if I don't get it, it's someone else's that that is because of something else. I, I don't know that that's fair to assess to every other part of the economy. If that's the case, then everybody in every that's just not the way the world works. Some people want to hear Steve Reich, some people don't. And some people want to hear Stuart Saunders Smith and some people don't. <laughs> so like just because I should want to make a, my living playing Stuart's music doesn't mean that I can. And I I don't know how like as a human and as a teacher, where do I overlap that so that I can keep make it a bridge rather than this gap I have to jump between should and can. You know what I mean? Mm. I I think so, but I think that we you know, we're also I mean, if, if we're going to talk about the, the social value that artists create, we have to put basically every other potential occupation on, on the table and mm-hmm. ask what kind of real social value um, does this job create? And, and you don't have to look very hard to start finding people uh, to, to, to find jobs where you can make lots and lots and lots and lots of money mm-hmm. and generate very, very little or no or negative social value. For example. But it's... Um, do, do you believe that hedge fund man- managers are appropriately compensated in the United States these days? Uh, I think I, I think only know make, one. I think in, in and I only know one, and I don't know enough about hedge. I mean, in general, I, I do I do feel like there are there is some. I yeah. mean, I could say the same about LeBron James. I mean, I I think he's amazing. Do I think he like? But on, but on the other hand, like if I were to say no, I would say well. But then let's get rid of the I Promise School in Akron. Let's get. I mean, all of a sudden you start to like. There are things that go away when you start to talk about that stuff, which I'm fine to embrace too. But I. I mean, to me, the glaring obvious, the glaring thing is like, yeah, we're talking about if the NBA and the MLB cannot figure out starting their seasons up with the billions of dollars they have at their disposal, how the fuck are we going to get schools opened up? Like, yeah. to me, that's the glaring. That, that's the most obvious thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, like, no, we're not all in the same playing field here. We are. No, no, we're not. And the fact that, you know, there are people who are being paid significant amounts of mm-hmm. money to advocate for parents to send their children's children into schools where the, where like we th- there's no real plan to stop the virus spread like yeah. the people who are advocating for that are generating negative social value i agree bill yeah i mean that's uh, i mean i i, I we're, ag- we're in agreement here in general i think like i to me i just i do i has i've always we've had these discussions in so percussion when we when we when we're tr- touring and stuff where you know we get we got i got an argument with martin schmidt from matmos about um he made some statement about you know, fund art. The arts are funded better in Europe, and that's the that's the way it should always be done, and it's better that way. And they said something offhand about Canada too, and and I just thought to myself, like, I agree with that, but I I, I 
to a certain to a certain degree. Like you can also point to groups like Cremata and be like, well, if so percussion was funded by a Democrat government and all of a sudden Republican got in there and decided they didn't think so percussion was worthwhile and they just decided to pull our funding. I don't I mean, we have to talk about that, too, if we're going to talk about things like government funded arts. Like, on the other hand. I think the the funding in the NEA is abysmal. Like I'm able to hold those two thoughts in my head simultaneously of like, we need to come somewhere a little closer to some sort of stasis here. So we're not listening mm-hmm. to one side. On the other hand, let's not just say like, well, if the government was just giving money to everybody for the arts, all art would be good and art would be fine. We'd be fine. It's like, well, hold up a second. Like I do, I do think it's important as an artist who has to do this on a daily basis. I have to convince donors why it's important. To fund us. I actually have to work harder to talk about my art to someone face to face who has zero idea about what I'm doing. And now maybe you have to do the same with a government official, but I don't know. Like I, I'm very hesitant to say like, I'm just going to hand over the decision-making process to a government to say who should get, who should get funding. I mean, I admit that's a complicated statement, but I just, I worry sometimes when we talk about things in these chaotic moments of like, well, this isn't working. So let's get rid of this completely and go the other way. And I just, I don't know. I just get, I get a little sketched out when I hear that sort of uh, rhetoric. I guess I understand that, but it, it, you know, the collapsing that into a binary, a binary choice where the options are either the, the status quo or some incredibly nonsensical place where artists all, you know, all you have to do is raise your hand and say, "I'm an artist," and you don't have to make anything good, and you get showered with money. I mean, that. That's not a binary choice. I, I'm not. No, I'm, and I'm not saying. Yeah, well, yeah. And I, but I, but right now, the discussions I perceive online, the statements I perceive are by and large binary mm-hmm. choices. You either are this or you're this. You are either with this mode of music education or you're you are against it. You are either with decolonizing music theory, or and if you and if you have any viewpoints that are opposite of that, you're a racist. And I'm just sort of like my head is sitting here at home just like scrolling through all this stuff like what in the fuck is everybody going – like hold up a second. I think we all need a little talk therapy. There's been a pandemic. <laughs> Let's slow down for two seconds here and try to – because I'm not, I'm not arguing for a binary choice. What I'm saying is that if we are going to talk about this one binary choice over here – Let's acknowledge there's another one, and then let's deal with all the stuff, the gradations in the middle. We are all on a spectrum. Oh, and yeah. This is Pro- – Problems ahead. don't get solved on Twitter. I mean <laughs> – Right, but very few people are having these conversations. Except, And I would say the diversity lines, so you guys are having these meetings in, a lot, it seems to me. Um, and I do think those discussions are fruitful. Um, I, I guess what I'm getting at is like – I want to get to this when I ask you the question, like, what do we do? What do we do? And to me, Mm -hmm. it's indicative of and myself too, bro. Like the fact that you didn't have a, like, well, this is let's, here's a good, here's a, here's a way to start the conversation. Here's the way the first step, like that's indicative to me that we don't actually have the next 10 words of the conversation. And I don't know what they are, but you are one of the smartest people I know on the fucking planet, Mm -hmm. Bill Salek (laughs) boson. And if you don't have, an answer, if you can't even make up an answer of like, what's, what would I do if I had this job? It's not an indication of you. It's an indication of, I think the conversation in general and one that like this conversation between the two of us at the diversity Alliance, like, man, we got to get to some, like, we got to get to some actionable items and start dealing with this. Otherwise we're just stapling brand new leaves to a rotten tree and being like, look, 
look at the wind blowing these new leaves. And then in three years, all those leaves have blown off and we're sitting here being like, the tree's rotten. It's like, no shit. The tree's rotten, you know? No. And, and, and the thing, you know, the, the, the other problem with social media, besides the fact that it's not a place where problems get solved, is that it's a place where geographic locality is completely flattened. That's like true, almost yeah. almost all of the work that I've done in the past two years that I think is meaningful and that really is going to improve people's lives has been involved. It's been me taking my brain and my body into a room with other people. And <laughs> Say that one more time, Bill. Say it one more time, just in case somebody missed that. Taking my brain and my body and going into a room with other people and, you know, not putting it out as a podcast and not turning it into a Twitter post, but figuring Mm -hmm. out how we're going to make a marginal difference, a marginal improvements in people's lives in Northeast Wisconsin at my institution, Mm -hmm. in our city, in our region, all of it like that. That is where the rubber really is hitting the road. Mm. Um, you know, we we have we have systemic problems. We have national problems. We have all kinds of problems. You and I have a deep range of interpersonal problems. But like, centered <laughs> around bats and, <laughs> and quantum particles for some strange and, reason and trivial pursuit <laughs> and toenails um, and, and ketchup. <laughs> but yeah, but I mean, you know, what once you you know get. <laughs> get offline and take mm-hmm. your body somewhere and do something meaningful for pe- for other people in your community. Um, that, you know, it's, it, it's, it's also, I don't want to say that it's easy or simple, but if, if enough people make enough marginal differences, all of that stuff accrues. I gotta and say, so like when you say you don't want to say it's easy, I have to say, it's easier than shouting online. The payoff is way better. And when I say well, it's the payoff is way better. Yeah. But that, but that's why I want to, I want people to think it's easier because like you can talk about, you can talk about what it's like to like, you need to diversify your, your world. You need to do, you know, like, but if you live in a white town, like that's hard to do. If you just if you live in a white area of the country, that's hard to do. But if you can go to Trinidad you know, like my guy, my friends in soap percussion, we went to Trinidad, like you can talk about it, but if you take your mind and your body and you go to a different place and you just exist in that other place, even if you don't say a word, you just participate in another culture, like whatever the payoff mm-hmm. will be way bigger than you ever imagined. And everybody will be pushed further forward in a positive direction than if you just sat at home and kept writing on Facebook about how awesome it is to diversify your life. And, to me, that's the thing that I just, I struggle with so much. And I, and I, I'm, I'm heartened that you say that because a problem, like when I see somebody post something about, you know, they live in Arizona or something and there's some thing that seemed that maybe, maybe completely local to them. And I read it and I feel like, wait, is that fire burning in my town too? Like, I don't know. Like, and so I start to have this anxiety, like, oh my God, Manchester, Connecticut is on fire with misogyny and racism too. And then I'm like, well, hold up. Okay. Maybe it's a little different than wait, the issues here are slightly nuanced, a little bit different. Like, like if it's just social media, like you said, you can't, it's nearly impossible to detach that. It feels like that person is in your living room telling you that your house is on fire (laughs) and you like, and you have to somehow respond and it's not healthy. It's not rational. No, but if, you know, 
if you take a look, for me at least, some, some of the most heartening things that have been happening over the past couple months have had to do with little white towns, as you call them, places mm-hmm. where, you know, a town of 5,000 people that's not terribly diverse, that is having actual, like, organic, mm-hmm. real protests about Black Lives Matter. Maybe not necessarily led by people who, who whose skin is a certain color, but where the sentiment is real, mm-hmm. and that you know, understanding that certain certain arrangements are, are things, you know, ways we've built our society are unhealthy and and need to change. I think that you know, you know th- that kind, you know, even, even without having to travel to Trinidad, that kind of local corporeal politics is important and in a lot of ways the most frustrating thing about this epidemic and our current political moment is that the virus makes corporeal politics directly dangerous Mm -hmm. if you're not careful and that i think that intersection is where a lot of real tension is happening yeah i mean i'm just going to be honest with you i mean the thing and what i'm about to say i acknowledge is completely irrational but you know, a couple of weeks into the pandemic, when the lockdown started, um, this is prior to George Floyd being murdered. Like, uh, two of our dear friends lost their two-year-old to a seizure, just totally suddenly, and they, you know, only one of them could go to the hospital when he was dying. Um, they held a, a service, like a memorial service, but it was a drive-by memorial service where we drove by their front yard. Like, we drove three hours to New Jersey, drove by their front yard, and they sat in the front yard wailing, Bill. Like, screaming tears as we drove by. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. Worse than seeing my father die. All of it, Bill. The worst. Mm-hmm. And then, the you know, George Floyd murder happens. The protests happen, and I'm of two minds where it's like, I, of course, of course, of fucking course, like, of course, like, of duh, you know. But when I see people, like, you know, we talk about the corp, corp, corporeal politics, when I see, you know, all of a sudden now all of the advice online is like, if you're going outside to protest, wear a mask. I'm like, wait a minute, hold up a second. I wasn't allowed to see my friends when their kid died. Don't expect me to see this clearly. Like, do not expect me to see this clearly. And I'm not going to get online and say that people can't protest because I, I'm, away, I'm able to hold two competing thoughts in my head like a person should be able to hold. But this idea that I think everybody, like, everything seems so clear to people. And I'm just like, how? I'm, I, can't, I can't untease this moment from every other thing that's going on right now. I can't pretend like like we're going to fix racism when I'm not even able to see my my friends deaths of their son rationally because I had to drive by and wave at them. I couldn't give them a hug. So no, I'm sorry. I like it's I I get really frustrated. It's just been really frustrating time for me personally just to to say that out loud of like and I don't I'm just going to go on a limb here and say I don't think I'm the only person who isn't able or maybe the only person I'm not the only person who probably recognizes in themselves an inability to see all of this clearly and rationally. Um, and I guess I just, you know, I want us all to be able to say that more, more out loud of like, I don't know what I'm talking about, but this is what I think right now. Don't hold me to it. You know, like, because I'm absolutely bonkers out of my mind with, for, I mean, even if you were just dealing with the president's Twitter feed, that's enough to drive anyone crazy. And then you topple, you, you couple everything else on top of it. I just really worry, Bill, about like all of these conversations happening and no one is admitting that 
this is all happening under incredible trauma and how we process mm-hmm. that and with each other, I think is really important. And I just, again, that's like, I don't know, I don't know what the answer to that is. It's just how I've been feeling. Yeah. None of us are okay. Mm-hmm. None, none of us are okay. And the conversations that we have have to recognize the fact that none of us are okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also, I think they also have to recognize the fact that not, some of us have not been okay for a while. Mm-hmm. Some of us are experiencing this level of not being okay for the first time. Um, and that maybe the biggest challenge is to hold the fact that I'm not okay, again, while simultaneously realizing that I need to recognize that you're also not okay. And that my level of not being okay is not better or worse or more currency or less currency in this discussion than your level of not being okay. Like that to me, that's where I, I just feel, I feel like the humanity goes away so quick when somebody's like, you find out what level of oppression someone's been at. And then all of a sudden that person's opinion doesn't matter because they haven't met the, the requisite. It's like, what are we doing? Like, what are we, <laughs> like, yeah, some people have ridiculous statements and it, like you should be held accountable. But by and large, I think a lot of people, the vast majority of people in this country are trying nobody I don't want to say nobody, but the vast majority of people do not want people to live under oppression. Vast majority of us participate in systems where you're not always aware how, like where the supply chain, like you buy a Zoom recorder, I don't know, like I have a Zoom recorder I'm recording this on. Was it put together by Uyghurs in China? Maybe. They're in concentration camps right now. Like there's the world is fucking crazy. And I, I just want us all to sort of, as we talk about this stuff, I appreciate you having this conversation with me, Bill, you, you, um, all my podcast guests since this pandemic started have been my therapists. You've been saving me a shitload of money on therapy. So I appreciate it. Um, but I suspect, I suspect I'm not alone in this. And I appreciate you, you sort of saying out loud what you did before. The one thing about not being okay, but also just about, I want you to sort of, I want to reiterate again, get your brain and your body in another room. And, you know, something my mom says is like all the time is like when you're in someone else's home, eat the dinner. Don't complain about the mm-hmm. food. Like put yourself in a, in a house where, where you've never smelled Indian food before. Eat, eat food that you don't like because it's the right thing to do. Like, like just you may be a vegan. I'm really sorry. You're going to eat the bus up shut with the goat in it. I'm sorry. <laughs> don't pick it out. Why? Because in this house, it's incredibly culturally inappropriate. Like, and if you want to talk about what's culturally appropriate, you want to be respectful of other cultures, that means all of it. <laughs> that means when you walk into someone's house, not saying, ooh, what's that smell? Because that smell is oxtail and you won't regret it. Trust me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, so anyway, Bill, um, we, we got really diverted from the PAS Diversity Alliance. Um, but I, but I, I want to sort of bring it back to that before I let you go and take any more of your, your precious time. Um, you were met, you were you were dealing with mostly you, you mentioned that you were sort of focusing on mostly socioeconomic issues. What el- what other uh, uh, Elizabeth is involved pretty heavily in the in the in the yeah. Uh, so so, well, so right? Doctor Elizabeth Delamater, my wife, is is chairing the Diversity Alliance and is doing absolutely fantastic work. Um, I am. If I try to give you a laundry list of all the specific focus areas, I'm going to miss some. But what I what I can say is that if you're on Facebook, mm-hmm. PAS Diversity Alliance has a Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Um, on Instagram, it's PAS Diversity. 
There's a weekly spotlight series of artists from marginalized communities who are doing fantastic percussive work. Um, uh, the, the Alliance sponsored a really wonderful panel at last year's PASIC. And then again, at this year's PASIC, which is going to be uh, online, not in person, there's going to be another panel. Uh, that panel is called uh, Percussion is for Everyone, Examining Our Community Through the Lens of Marginalized Groups. That's coming up in November. Who's on that panel? Um, I don't know offhand. Mm. But some wonderful people, some wonderful people are on that panel, I assure <laughs> Fantastic. you. Fantastic. Um, and then a lot of the recent work has, has been, uh, again, doing these kinds of roundtables with artists from different perspectives. The most recent one, uh, it, it's going to be going up uh, Thursday. It's going to be going up tomorrow, actually. Mm. Uh, what's today's date? Today's the 29th. Okay, so July 30th. Um, there's a round table on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the marching arts. Uh, that's going to be going up. Uh, you know, again, we, we have field wide problems, but again, addressing these with some specificity because, you know, the marching arts have a specific culture, just like new music has a culture mm -hmm. and just like symphony orchestras have a culture. And it's where, where a huge amount of our, our community starts off quite frankly. Mm -hmm. And that's where that's their entrance point to a lot of this stuff. It's what was, was my entrance point to new music was marching band, you know? Yeah. So again, a, a, a whole range of, of, of issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion there. That's going to be going up. I think it's going to be going up on Facebook live. Um, but yeah. And then uh, the, the work I'm doing with socioeconomics, we're working on getting some, some scholarships for PASIC and some other things. Um, it's a really great organization. If you're a member of PAS and you care about this stuff, you should join it. How do you join it? Um, what I would do is I would, oh man, um, you're asking me all the good <laughs> questions that are the simple ones that are bowling me over. Um, I'm so sorry, what I would do, and again, I've exposed you I, as a charlatan, Bill. You've, you've exposed me as a, as an underling. Um, what I would do is I would reach out through social media, through the Facebook group or through okay. Instagram and, and your, your query will get intercepted by the right person and you'll be told about next steps. And the right person is not you. No. <laughs> is there a website bill? Dare I ask a third question? Uh, there isn't a separate website. Okay. I, I, I think it's listed under the committee's page on the PAS website, but really the Facebook page or, or the Instagram account are the quickest ways to get there. Okay. Well, hey, one final thing, and this is how I want to end every podcast moving forward with people. Um, I got this game called We Are Not Really Strangers. Have you heard of this mm -hmm. game? I haven't. It's just, it's, it's a game that has three different levels, and it's for like... You know, people that you, you just meet, like conversation starters, and then people that you sort of know well, and then there's people you know really well. And I'm going to jump to level three, Bill, because you and I know quite each other quite well. And I'm going to ask you a question, and then I'm going to pick one up and hold it up, and you're going to read it to me as, as if you were asking the question. So here is okay. – um, okay, here's my question for you. Do you think I intimidate others? Why or why not? I don't think you intimidate others. I don't think you intimidate others because you are open and immediate enough that you invite people to instead be open and immediate with you. I appreciate that about you, Bill. Um, let me see one now that you can ask. Sorry, I'm trying to find a, they're all mixed up. 
Okay, here we go. I have no idea what this says, but I'm going to let you... Can you see that? It says, yes. On a scale of 1 to 10, how messy do you think my car is? 1 being cleanest, 10 being a complete disaster. And explain. I am going to say that your car is very akin to your kitchen because that is where you do a lot of thinking. Um, though you haven't driven in a while because of the pandemic, I'm going to say that your car, though so at times a disaster area, like your kitchen, is a place that you, you hold sacred and that you keep generally pretty organized. So I'm going to say on a scale of 1 to 10, I'm going to say just like your kitchen, I'm going to say it's organized on a Bill Salick level at around a 7 to an 8. You're pretty much right. We know, we, we know each other pretty damn well, Bill. You've seen the way I keep my, my desk in my office. <laughs> yes, yes. Or at least you saw the way I did 20 years ago. It hasn't changed. We'll see, Bill. That was fun. We learned to, we're, we're friends, Bill. We really do know <laughs> each other. Hey, man, I love you dearly. I appreciate you doing this. And um, I, it's always good to chat and catch up. And um, I hope we can do it again soon. And please tell, tell, tell uh, Elizabeth I said hey and stay safe and stay, stay healthy. Okay, buddy? Yeah, same to Stephanie. Love you, man. All right, see you, buddy. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. This podcast was brought to you by Liquid Drum, L-I-Q-U-I-D-R-U-M.com. Hilarious percussion videos, great content. Check them out, liquiddrum.com. Also, dunleavypans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes, builds, and tunes all the steel drums I play and teach on. Uh, you can find his drums at dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y, pans.com. You won't, recommend, you won't regret it. Look him up. Uh, also, paninmotion.com. If you're looking for more information about what a steel drum is, what steel drum music is, what kind of advocacy there is around it, uh, and in particular what the scene is like in Brooklyn, New York, where the organization is based, you can look them up at paninmotion.com. All my friends, uh, all the people who work there are dear friends of mine. Check them out. And finally, if you're looking for good steel drum merch uh, and more advocacy, go to Mango Chow on Facebook. Mango like the fruit and Chow, C-H-O-W. Okay, hope you enjoyed that conversation with me and my good friend Bill. I will look forward to talking with Bill in the future. And I look forward to talking to all of you again soon. I hope you're doing well. Stay safe and uh, talk to you soon. Take care. Bye.